thing that has changed the economics significantly is the carbon offset market and being able to fund the reforestation. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Welcome, friend, to the 101st episode of the Business for Good podcast. I appreciate all the kind comments listeners made about the 100th episode and hope you got a lot out of hearing billionaire investor Steve Jurvetson's thoughts on a wide array of topics. If you didn't hear episode 100, I highly recommend going back and listening, but do that after you check out this episode since this, too, is a very cool one. It's cool because Grant Canary has found a way to make money by cooling the planet with trees. In episode 98 with Maddie Hall, you may recall that we learned about how her startup, Living Carbon, is bioengineering trees to grow faster so that we can reforest the planet more quickly. And in this 101st episode, we're going to hear about a different approach to reforestation. Every year, millions of acres of forest in the U.S. burn down, and the number of acres burning is increasing annually, sadly. We know that trees not only provide critical wildlife habitat, but they're an important part of keeping carbon out of the atmosphere. Yet literally billions of trees trees burn up in wildfires every single year. Regardless of how fast those trees may grow, just imagine how much time it would take to hand plant enough seeds to replace billions of burned down trees. Enter Drone Seed. Founded in 2016, the company has now raised well over $30 million from venture investors to essentially automate the reforestation process. Rather than planting seeds by hand or even randomly from the air, the 100-person startup's drones survey the burned land, plan the mission, and then strategically drop pucks filled with seeds and the nutrients those seeds will need to grow in areas they're most likely going to take root. The company is already selling carbon offsets to companies like Shopify, proving that sometimes it can be more profitable to grow a forest than to cut one down. As I said, it's a cool story and one I think that will be inspirational for you. I now bring you Drone Seed CEO, Grant Canary. Grant, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Hello. Great to be talking with you. It's funny because I did not know about your company and I was talking with this one investor and he was like, yo, you've got to know about Drone Seed. You need to meet Grant. This is like totally up your alley. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll check it out sometime. And then lo and behold, I am at this like, climate tech investors event on a boat in Italy and everybody's going around doing intros and there you are. And I'm like, oh my God, I've heard of this guy before. It was so funny. The stars aligned to bring us together, not in our own home country, but across the world. And I'm deeply grateful because you told one of the best jokes in your presentation that I still remember today and get a small chuckle out of. Ah. Happy to connect and very excited. Do tell her. I don't remember the jokes, but now you've got to let it out of the bag because people are going to want to know. And they're going to know if it's true that I actually told a good joke. <laughs> I think I think the punchline was had to do with a mushroom guy and a fun guy. Yeah, yeah. I make a lot of fun guy jokes. That's true. I, there's just, even in a short talk like that, which was like a ten, 10 minutes, I had too much room for the jokes, I think. So that's cool. I'm glad that you're into fungi. I know that you probably love mycelial networks because they're what help keeps for their help, what helps keep forests healthy. But we're going to be talking more about getting those forests even started in the first place here because of what you are doing. So before we learn though, 
Grant about what drone seed is actually doing, and it seems pretty self-evident based on the name. There's a lot of acres that are burning down. Uh, I'm in California right now, and there's huge wildfires. I can walk outside of my home in Sacramento, and I can smell the fires. They're just raging, and every year the fires get bigger and bigger. So how many acres are we losing to fire in the United States every year? Do you have any idea about the statistics? Yeah, absolutely. Can talk through some of those. And then I want to give a little bit of an idea. The name Drone Seed, very specific to one aspect of the business, but I want to give us some things to unpack. We've got Drone Seed, and then we've got Silva Seed, which we acquired in 2021. So we are kind of what we do is a one-stop shop for reforestation, our vertically integrated business. Silva Seed does seed, and we've expanded to become the largest private seed bank in the West, which is a big deal after those wildfires. Where is that seed coming from? And then we grow millions of seedlings, and then we get them out to site utilizing heavy lift drones, the seed itself and seed vessels, and then we follow up with the seedlings six to nine months later, and then we pay for it all with carbon offsets. So that's the two businesses combined doing four products to do vertically integrated reforestation after wildfires. The wildfires themselves, what's that number? For the US, we're looking at a 10-year rolling average of about 2.5 million acres burning between 82 and 92. Fast forward to present day, that number's gone up to 7.5 million acres is what's burned in the last 10 years, kind of rolling average. And that's a 5 million acre jump. It's about the size of the state of New Jersey. It is, if you're in the forestry sector, that's about five warehouses worth of reforestation. It's our estimates that they do about a million acres of reforestation a year. And that is a lot. And basically, the large takeaway is with that significant increase, both natural regeneration or forest burn, forest regrow is in significant decline. And the supply chain from the human side is completely overwhelmed. So first on the natural side, and then I'll pause here so we can, you, we, you could take us where we need to go, but on the natural, <laughs> yes. wh- yeah, go ahead. Why? So you, well, basically what you're saying is that the rate of burning of American forests and of course forests around the world, but here we are in the United States, so we're talking about this, has dramatically increased. And my understanding is that it's not necessarily that there are more forest fires, but rather they are much bigger and more severe. And so why is it that we have so many more of these really big forest fires than we did even 20 years ago? Yeah. So we see a couple couple causes. Think, so think of trying to start a campfire if you've ever done that and done it with wet wood. It's a lot harder to get that campfire to start. How do you dry out wood? You think about a kiln for ceramics or anything like that. The longer you have a dry season, the drier and drier the, that wood is going to be. And so what you're going to see is bigger, more severe fires. And that affects, we see with climate change, longer summers, longer periods of drought, more severe heat and intensity. And so that's a lot drier wood. Then we see what happens with natural regeneration is high severity fires, they burn the sources of seed in the soil and in the tops of the trees. Whereas low severity fires, they came through, I think picture like a creme brulee, you blow towards the top, right? And then there's all that yellow, gooey, tasty stuff underneath. In my metaphor here, the the yellow, gooey bits are the sort of several inches down in the soil. That's where the seeds are stored. Low severity fires, historically, they didn't burn all those seeds. High severity fires, it's like blowtorching the entire creme brulee. There's no delicious yellow bits left. It's all just crisp blackness. And that includes the topsoil and the seeds. Same thing with the tops of the trees, one of our trees, Low severity fires, they burn the middle of the tree, that those big bushy parts, and they don't really get up to the top third. High severity fire, 
It's like a Looney Tunes tree struck by lightning. It goes all the way up to the top, completely black, no cones left. And uh, so there's no seed source. And then you put it over 250,000 acres, a million acres or more for a complex. And uh, that's a very large distance for seed to travel from other seed sources. And then you look at what's happening on the human side. You got Tom Porter on 60 Minutes a, a year or two ago talking about how a, a 10 to 50,000 acre fire used to be a once in a career event for a hotshot firefighter. Now it's not, it's barely newsworthy. You've got a million acres that burn in Alaska and it's, it's almost touching the news cycles depending upon what you're paying attention to and what your feeds look like. So industry used to have 10 years to respond to a 10,000 acre fire. Now it's got full 100,000, 200,000 acre fires going on often. And there's, so the, the supply chain is very much overwhelmed, which means seed is in short supply, seedlings and grow spaces in short supply labor and then the money to pay for it all. So that's where we work on all four, four fronts. Okay. So according to my own research here, it looks like there are well over 10 billion with a B, 10 billion trees that are getting burned down every single year on the planet. And trees are basically the OG of direct carbon capture, right? They're basically sucking carbon from the air and sequestering it in these tall columns of carbon, basically. And so this is really bad. It's bad for climate Millions change. of years of product sprints. Yeah, that's right. And it's bad for wildlife diversity too. If need places to live. And obviously they have a very difficult, most of them have a very difficult time living in our cities. And a lot of them have a difficult time even living in our agricultural fields, but because they're monocropped, but forests are a place where they can eke out an existence even on a human dominated planet. And when the forests are all burning down, it, it makes it very hard. And so this is a problem both for climate change and for wildlife diversity, and frankly, just for wildlife extinction. And so the question is, because of climate change, we're going to have these more and more severe fires. So what can we do? What can we do to actually try to heal some of the damage that we are inflicting on the planet? And you had this idea. So when did it come to your mind, Grant, that Maybe we should be trying to reforest, not by hand, but by drone. So, so I went through a lot of bad ideas first. And I know that they were bad ideas because I went through a week or month-long sprints working through them and realized I put them in front of other people and people would tell me like, no, don't spend five years of your life on that. I, I don't want that product. I don't want that in my life. And thinking about that to a friend and they are like, I guess you're going to go plant trees. And I had participated in a very large tree planting project as an external consulting consultant in Colombia, the country, and was looking at a project that had existed there for 20 years. And there was a group of investors that wanted to have a single source of carbon offsets in a very large scale, the size of Denali National Park, all in, in one operation. So we looked at that and I was impressed with the level of automation going into the, the planting operations there started asking some of the same questions in my home country here, the US, and was very surprised about the lack of automation in reforestation. And there is a whole community of people that have dedicated their lives and decades of scientific research, and we're very much beholden to them. And one of the things that came up as I talked to folks about what had been tried, what, what did people look at before, what's worked, what's not worked, as far as like making this a more scalable process, because it was very clear to me, like, we need more trees to be that OG of direct air carbon capture. Like, how do we get more of them faster? And what are the big obstacles? And one of the big things that came, kept coming up again and again was terrain. 
And what had been tried in the past was helicopters and other C-130 transports and seed bombing and dumping things out and whatnot, but they were incredibly inaccurate. And so where we got started was, well, flying and navigating that terrain quickly. But then also drones have this ability. We fly drones that are about eight feet in diameter and carry a 57 pound payload. They can very much precision target where we're dropping the seed vessels. And so that became the focus of the company for and remains the focus of the company, although we've expanded because there are other bottlenecks in the reforestation pipeline. What were you doing before, though? You're talking about how you were thinking about starting this company to reforest the planet, but what was what were you doing that you would even have the idea that, oh, I should start my own company? So few people do that. Yeah, everything I've ever done has been in sustainability. And I had, a, as it often occurs, I had a high school English teacher that helped me figure out what was my reason to exist. What was my purpose to borrow from the Broadway play Avenue Q? And I looked at it and I was like, like, I, I see that like climate change is the problem that all other problems report to. It's the first order. It's the thing that there are so many problems that are super important that we work on that we could all agree on. And the people working on them, whether they're in medicine, whether they're in autonomy and democracy and how do, how do people collaborate as a society, etc. They're not going to get any more time on the clock to solve those problems if we don't mitigate the worst effects of climate change. And so that became to me like where I started to look and go, okay, so I started, I worked in US Green Building Council, a couple other home energy certification companies. I worked with Vestas Wind Energy who sent me around the world to China, Denmark, the United States doing change management projects, working in construction, working in spare parts and repair, working in sales, like really doing a, hey, what does this look like? How does this build business grow? And then very non-traditionally, we did my master's degree at the Universidad de la Sabana in Bogota and built a company there taking food waste, uh, feeding it to maggots. So I hold that distinguished title of maggot farmer and uh, turning it into industrial protein for fish feed. Because on the one hand, we my master's thesis was looking at we're overfishing the small fish populations and with the economics of that, the inelasticity, et cetera. And we're utilizing it to feed salmon, which are the most fish being one of the most efficient forms of food conversion other than plant-based. And that price is going to go up. Could we do that with food waste, which is a waste product for good and bad reasons and create something that we would have more food supply and a more sustainable balance and uh, built a pilot facility, imported the equipment, hired the research teams in Bogota. This is sort of the reason and the philosophy of why I started to get going. And then also my path. And hopefully that's helpful to others as they're looking at things. And I think, I think kind of just followed that as my reason to exist over and over. I look for what were the options for me to do something on sustainability and then leaving that that company really wanted to do something to focus on what we, like how do we remove carbon from the atmosphere because we've already put so many emissions up there even if we were magically all net zero tomorrow we'd still go through all the effects of climate change because there's so much pollution already in the atmosphere so that's for me where I have my path there so let me ask you something grant so you're very concerned about climate change, you're very concerned about all the emissions that are in the atmosphere. And so you decide that you want to reforest. Is that enough? Is reforesting sufficient to deal with the emissions that we already have emitted? Or do we need something more than that? 
Oh, absolutely not. Trees are not a silver bullet. So let me just go on record. And like, I get so frustrated when people want to be mad at people working on trees. We are, it is reforestation, protecting existing trees is not a silver bullet for mitigating the worst effects of climate change. Absolutely. We have to decarbonize first, stop emitting things, and then get into how do we remove. And one of the things that's appealing about reforestation and trees today is it is scalable. It is scalable. It is cost effective. It is an evolved product through, I made the joke earlier, through all thousands, millions of years of product sprints by nature to evolve one of the most efficient organisms that not, I've made this joke earlier, but if I told you how to robot that would self-construct and then self-replicate while doing its function, you'd be terrified. You'd be starting to think about Terminator or otherwise, but that's what a tree is doing. And that's a very efficient way to capture carbon. And so very excited about that. But we mm-hmm. do, it is an all hands on deck. Like we need all of the options for both decarbonization, as well as what are all of the ways to remove carbon out of the atmosphere, whether they be mechanical, whether they be biological or otherwise. Yeah, and there's non-climate benefits as well. They do provide a lifeline for wildlife, as I mentioned earlier. It's Yes, it's climate change mitigating, but it's also providing somewhere for for wild living animals to exist. So there's many benefits to having more trees for sure. So Grant, you had an earlier startup you had this successful exit from it. And then you're thinking, okay, what can I do to reforest the planet? And you have this idea that, look, it's taking, it's going to take forever for us to do this by hand and helicopters aren't going to be able to do the trick either. And so you came up with this idea about basically having drones do this. But what did you do first? Like you'd already been through one entrepreneurial rodeo. So presumably you knew something about running a company, but what was your first step? Did you just go out to investors who had invested in your previous company? What did you do when you actually had the idea and then decided that you wanted to execute on it. Yeah, I think it, it was a it wasn't a light bulb moment. It wasn't it wasn't a oh this is what I'm doing. In some regards, it's oh this is really cool. But I had a number of ideas, and I was reading Eric Rise Lean Startup, quintessential product management book. Listening to Hard Thing About Hard Things, which the entrepreneurial journey there really resonated with me. It's hard. It's not easy. And I was I think I just started kept wading deeper into it. So where I got started was, okay, talk to everybody that I could find in my network that had anything to do with forestry and ask them everything I could to put together the ideas and then start to look at all of the like research that I could put together about if I have to make the case that to myself, I'm, I'm thinking about myself as my first investor, I'm going to spend five, 10 years, which I had in the last business, nine, building this business I've got to convince myself some of the basic things that investors are going to ask as well. Am I going to be able to do this? What's the capital required? What's the market look like? And thinking about how am I going to present this information and and construct a case that this is where I should pursue and this is where I should go. And then also running into some of the litmus tests is like a person of one here in a company. Can we build this thing? Can I get this off the ground? Are there some goals here that from an engineering standpoint are breaking laws of physics or otherwise going to cause a lot of difficulty that's going to cause this business to fail. And so starting to look at a lot of those, working out basic prototypes of what is a drone, what kind of, what's capable, what's capable in the drone space. This is not a, I'm a drone guy looking for a problem. This is very much like I have a problem 
and I'm looking for what's the best way to solution to, to create a solution for more scalability based mm-hmm. off of all of the people in this community who have already spent their livelihoods building the body of knowledge and how can I add to it? And then if I identify it, great, here's how I think I can add to it. How do I, how do I test that? Very cool. Very cool. So you've done a lot of testing. You guys are not just dropping seeds randomly from drones, as you alluded to. I know that you guys have several steps in the process. So what is the actual process that drone seed is going through? It's not just like you put a bunch of seeds on a drone and just go willy nilly drop them and they might fall on asphalt or rocks or anywhere else where they're not going to grow, right? Yeah, it's a three-step process. So I think let's start at the very beginning with wildfire. With wildfire, we land manager whether it's a timber company, whether it's a nonprofit like the Nature Conservancy, whether it's a tribal nation, small family forests, state and federal agencies, all land managers, all affected by fire. The first thing they're going to be looking for is, okay, do we have seed? Do we have, we have a space to work, grow it, et cetera. So we receive a lot of web inquiries after fires from those land managers. And um, you know, one of the, you know, what we do is we do a series of evaluations, start to put together the economics, but on the, and then, really what we want to do to get to the drone part is we want to get out there and we want to first survey with a step one of three, survey the area, survey with a smaller aircraft, utilizing LIDAR, utilizing multi-spectral imaging, we'll build a 3D terrain map. And that terrain map, what it's what we're doing there is first, don't run into things, existing trees that are burned on site, the contours of hills, et cetera. And number two, where are things going to grow? The areas that things might grow well are might be obvious to us, but we've got to create a comprehensive map very quickly. So let's avoid any existing, you know, blackberry bushes that may have survived the fire. We may we want to avoid gravel patches, roads, other things. Step two, take that and at about a third acre scale, remove all those areas we don't like and create all the pre-programmed flight paths for our aircraft. Um, step three, go out to site two trucks, two trailers, six aircraft. And what we're doing is we're flying two to five aircraft at a time. So heavy lift swarms and the aircraft are, they're about eight feet in diameter, carry out 57 pound payload of seed vessels, which we've manufactured in Seattle. And what we're doing is we're flying those pre-programmed routes and dropping those seed vessels. They, we come back, land the aircraft, and then we swap out the batteries, swap out the payload for the seed vessels as fast as possible, NASCAR pit crew style, and, uh, and then get them back up in the air. And so that's really where we've shined and developed a lot. And then one of the, one of the critical insights that, that we identified was there is an insufficient amount of seed because the supply chain is completely overwhelmed. And what are we going to do about that? And that's really where we got into Silverseed. So, yeah, you mentioned that you had acquired silver seed and we can chat about that, but I want to know what's in these pucks that you're dropping. Is it just seeds? What are you actually putting in there? Is there something else that helps them to make sure they have a better chance when they start out in life? Yeah, they're about the size of a hockey puck. So let's start there. They're dry natural fibers and they're seeds and they're almost like a little pocket of soil. And the two things that kill seeds are desiccation, drying out. So those natural fibers absorb moisture help retain it so it's available to the seed. And then the other thing that kills seeds are predators, squirrels, mice, birds. And so we have some deterrents there that are natural that when we've disclosed one of them in the Mark Rober video, which is an awesome watch, and he does a great job of explaining our business, but also carbon capture by trees. 
And that one of those ingredients is super spicy pepper. So that's an example of something that if you're familiar with Scoville counts and measure or scale of spiciness, super high, you think ghost peppers, Carolina Reapers blended together, that's, that's a nasty reaction. If you're not looking for it and for a squirrel or mouse, like that's the intent there, they have that same reaction. A perfect solution, it reduces the amount of predation. And it's a pretty interesting thing because birds evolved in such a way that they do not taste that hot spice. And so you'll even notice like in some commercial bird seeds, they are laced with cayenne pepper to prevent squirrels from eating it or other mammals from eating it, but the birds don't mind it. And so it's pretty interesting like that if you put hot pepper in there that you can at least prevent some of the animals who would eat these tree seeds from eating it. Although I guess not birds, I guess, but you can prevent some of the, some of the mammals from eating it. Birds are spicy, or it's not so spicy, it's sweet and sour. So Grant, I know that they're, you're, you have this whole team of drones, they're going out, they're surveying, they're making sure they don't drop any seed pucks in the wrong place. But the company is not that old, so there's no mature forest yet where your drones have dropped their payload. How do you know what impact you're making? Like, How do you know these trees are actually growing up where they are intended to go? Yeah, we start off, we come back after the summer ideally, but sometimes before the summer as well, and basically utilize old school forestry and create sample plots. Why not just measure every tree that's growing? Because across 500 acres or more, that's a lot of trees. And so you want to create sample plots. And then also you want to see, you want to have those sample plots be randomly assigned across that acreage, et cetera. So how many sample plots per 100 acres or 10 acres or, or whatnot. And this is just good old-fashioned forestry. So we do that. We measure how many trees are in kind of a 10-meter circle or otherwise and go from there. And that's one way to get it. Now, with carbon offset projects, it gets a lot more there. It's a lot more robust. We utilize Climate Action Reserve and their methodology. And so for a carbon offset project, what we see is that they require a third party to come out, which is a credited forester under them. And it's a minimum of one year later which is important because the trees have to survive a summer that I mentioned earlier, drying out is one thing that kills seeds, but it can also kill established seeds that have turned into baby seedlings. So they come out a year later, it's gone through a summer, they do the same type of sample plots and they issue a report, goes to Climate Action Reserve and Climate Action Reserve then issues the offsets. The other thing that we do for offset projects is there is 100 years of funded monitoring. And so what that looks like is, as part of the project setup costs, there's an endowment, just like a university endowment, and it goes into goes to a nationally accredited land trust, and there's a conservation easement placed on the property. And that means that they have the right to do an annual report and a five-year site visit, or they can do more than that, but that's generally where they land. And that's for the next 100 years. And so when Climate Action Reserve uses very conservative models to forecast how much carbon will be removed out of the atmosphere by trees growing over the next 100 years, they're able to have funded monitoring, reporting, and verification of that. And then the last piece as far as assurance for, for a purchaser like Shopify, which has bought a, which has announced that they purchased a significant quantity of offsets from us, they know that if there is a fire or beetle kill or other reversal all of the projects under Climate Action Reserve's methodology will be in a future, the, right now we're the first of eight projects. There's an insurance buffer pool like CARS, other methodologies that will be established that then each of those projects contributes in 
a portion of the offsets. So just like auto or health insurance, you contribute in offsets. And if your project is one that's affected by a reversal, a fire, or otherwise, the off, all of the offsets are retired from the insurance pool. And so that way Shopify has assurance that it's coming from us or it's coming from the insurance pool. And that gives them a lot of trust in the methodology. So there is a hell of a lot of work that goes into good reforestation. So we haven't even talked about the natural parts of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's just talk about how you're making money then, because obviously it seems like a cool idea to take a bunch of drones and have them strategically try to reforest areas that have been burned down. But you mentioned that Shopify is paying for these carbon offsets. So just very briefly, Grant, for those who aren't familiar with the carbon offset market, like why would Shopify, when it has no legal reason to do, just pay money to reforest the planet? Two words, competitive advantage. We the, Like any new technology, there are always, here's the initial use case, and then, oh, wow, there's all these other cool use, use cases or product managers calling them user stories. And so with Shopify, first, they're doing the good work, net zero companies, so decarbonizing, getting carbon emissions out of their daily operations. But then they're going further than that, and they're buying these offsets specifically to simulate how do we get carbons out of the atmosphere, but also they are now funding their planet app. And so that app is, they're a point of sale. They compete with all of the other services that could charge your Visa card or set up a storefront for their online merchants. So it's an app in their marketplace that you can basically utilize and it makes them more competitive against their against other point of sale providers because you can offset all of your shipping. And they've done all the hard work of making sure that the carbon removals are following a protocol, that they're very high quality. And that app, you can subscribe. What it does is it reviews at the end of the month how much money has been spent on the shipping. And then you can pay money towards nature-based systems, nature and tech, or nature tech, and then some. And so that's that's an exciting thing to offer to customers, not require. And uh, that makes some storefronts more competitive in selling their products by just by virtue of that. So that's one user story is in the point of sale. There's a whole bunch of others in everything from real estate to airlines, maritime shipping, tech with competing for talent, both internally and competing for customers. That's the one I think most people are familiar with. But if you're an Apple, Google, Facebook, or otherwise just involved in tech, one, you've got to compete for the best talent. And they're that is being more a more sustainable company. There's a number of surveys out there that people will take a lower paying job to have a bigger impact on the future and sustainability. They will take a five to 10K pay cut. And that's a big deal. Not that they should have to. In fact, I think in some cases, you're seeing it go the other direction. And then the other is that they've, they're selling watches, cars, rockets, whatever. They're selling a vision of the future. And while we may be suspicious about marketing, et cetera, there's a reason that when we think of a soft drink, we usually think of one of three brands, one of them being Coca-Cola. It's because of all that marketing. If you're selling that vision of the future, that vision of the future has to talk about climate change, regardless of if it's for a watch or a car or whatnot. And if it's, it's not really a really true vision of the future. And so that fits within their branding, how you view or perceive them as a meta brand of um, when I think of a company, what do I think of? And so that's, they're competing for customers. On the real estate side, if you'll just let me keep going for one more, I think that one's exciting as well, where what we see is that you can see better interest rates on lending for building more housing or otherwise, because there is a stronger appetite for green bonds 
Maersk saw this with getting shipping containers or ships for 12 new shipping container ships, rather. They got a better rate because the fuel source was cleaner and there was an appetite for green bonds. And then you see that in the opposite side of things with home and housing development. And then you also see it with tenant rates. Do the work on the HVAC, do the work on what's the carbon footprint, but there's going to be some sticky stuff like transport, et cetera, that's going to be real difficult to eliminate the emissions from today. And so that's where the offsets come in. And if you can communicate that effectively to your tenants, you can get a higher premium rate on the, the apartment or the condo or whatnot that you're leasing by renting, selling, et cetera. And so that's exciting. So those are things that are pure competitive advantage. And then the thing that I'm most bullish about is the SEC proposed rule where all publicly traded companies must disclose their emissions for scope one and two, we'll see, maybe three, and then follow the same methodology. So it takes it out of the marketing department and puts it into SEC compliance, so Securities and Exchange Compliance Department. And so CFOs all of a sudden have to learn what are the methodologies for carbon accounting and everyone has to follow the same one and disclose, which at present day, you would think with all the announcement that every company does this, most don't disclose. And I'm looking forward to he- seeing and hearing some earnings calls where we're looking at it and saying, dear CEO, CFO, whatnot, why are you more carbon intensive than your adjacent competitor doing the same business? And all of a sudden, there's an interest in decarbonizing, reducing your exposure to climate change, fuel pricing, hikes, etc. And we've seen this in a Harvard Business Review, Ryanair and the compliance market, very much on its earnings call, it had bought a bunch of offsets in advance, the price had gone up significantly. And one analyst estimated it saves them about 10% on their profits for that period. So that's a that's where I see things headed and I'm very excited and bullish about that in both incentivizing people to decarbonize and remove the source of emissions. And then also for those sticky parts that are going to be very difficult to get rid of to purchase those offsets. So the carbon offsets are basically where your uh, where your revenue is coming from. And in, in the future, there may be some public policies like what you just mentioned that could also accelerate that. So that's why venture capitalists have viewed the company not just as a good deed, but as a good investment as well. And so how much money, Grant, have you raised to date for Drenseed? I'll share to give people an idea. We've raised, we've raised $36 million in our Series A. And very pumped about those investors coming in in that round. You mentioned earlier the source of revenue coming from the carbon offsets. That's a big driver of it. But we also grow millions of seedlings and collect a lot of seed and process it and make it available for communities affected by fire. So those are baseline revenues in existing businesses. And that's really exciting as well. So the baseline, and then we ramp up really significantly in in the carbon offsets. That's where we've been at with the raise and our investors. There's too many to name, but you can see the TechCrunch article with that list if that's helpful. Sure. We'll link the TechCrunch article about your Series A in the show notes at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But yeah, it's pretty amazing. Do you think you know ref- that reforestation is not just something that is going to be good for the world, but hopefully even good for your investors and obviously for you as a founder and for your employees as shareholders in the company? So you got $36 million burning a hole in your pocket now, Grant. What are you going to do with it? What's the primary use of funds for that $36 million? We've been expanding, and this is really what the supply chain needs, which is how do we take seed out of critically low inventory levels? How do we increase the quantity of seedlings available in the market? 
how do we do automation and provide better tools for reforestation for folks out there doing that so that it's less calorically intensive? It's about the caloric equivalent of running two marathons every day at work for manual tree planting, and there's white papers out there to show it. And then really what's been the the thing that has changed the economics significantly is the carbon offset market and being able to to fund the reforestation. Most of the offsets that we've heard about are for protecting existing stands of trees, which is good. We want to do that. But there, up until recently with the Climate Action Reserve Protocol, it was incredibly difficult, in fact, so difficult that pretty much nobody did it, to fund reforestation with carbon offsets. And Climate Action Reserve Protocol changed that. And now we see Vera, Gold Standard, ICR also creating similar reforestation protocols in the last two years to fund reforestation at scale. So that's what we're up to is is expanding on all of those fronts simultaneously. Nice. And how many folks work at the company now? Yeah, we're up to about 112 drone seed and silver seed combined. Nice. Wow. It's a large group of people who you're working with now, Granton, for a company that has been around for a single digit number of years. If when you were sitting around thinking about dropping seeds from drones, did you envision that it would become a workforce of over 100? Was this something that was on your mind or did this happen in a way that was surprising to you? I think it's it's a one step at a time. I think like anybody who's ever gone on a long journey, I've lived 10 years abroad. You don't necessarily go and plan to like, I'm going to go live 10 years abroad. Some people do. That was definitely not my experience. I thought, oh, I'll go do this. And then I was like, oh, and then I followed the path and oh, I'll go do this. And I started off and went, went to Italy and then continued my master's in Bogota and then got acquired and in between had a lot of travel with Vesis Wind. And so I think like this is very similar with Drone Seed, which is... Um, get it started, get it up, get it running. Like, how do we get this funded? Okay, cool. Now I can hire people. Oh, now we're doing all these things here. What are our, what are the metrics? What are the things we care about? Oh, now get it funded again. And so, yeah, I think that's the, that's what happens as far as, as far as the journey in my mind, it's been very much keep focusing on the next milestone and don't get too attached to the kind of, and let the path take you where it's going to take you. Let me though ask you, you've now done two companies, one from which you had an exit and another that so far at least seems to be going pretty well. I presume as a serial entrepreneur that you have many ideas about things that you wish existed that maybe you or you would like to do, but don't have the time to do, or maybe you just hope somebody else would do that would do good for the world. Do you have any suggestions, Grant, or if there's anybody sitting here listening, thinking, ah, I really love what this Grant dude is doing. I think it's so cool that he started this. What ideas do you think they should do? to what should they pursue in order to make the world a better place? I look at what's happening in my home country, the U S here. And I look at what's happening to the threats to democracy. And I would, could not have thought in 2016 that democracy would be one of the things challenged in advance of climate. And I would be looking at what could be done in the political space. And one of the things that I look at is, I call it civic tech or whatever you want to call it. It is. It does not seem to me to be very expensive in the scheme of things to get a ballot measure onto the state ballot. And that to me is like a state, in some ways that's crazy scary. In some ways that that is, but you can literally look it up, like how many dollars per signature, how many signatures required to get a, a thing right. on a state ballot. I'd be looking at, opportunities to 
on the consumption of news media. Uh, I'd be looking at the opportunities on democratic reforms. I'm a huge fan of ranked choice voting. In no world do, do I believe it should be like a, you can either have a candidate that, that you truly believe in and matches, but if you're wrong, you, you end up with someone that is the complete antithesis of what you're looking for. It's like asking somebody to go for ice, they go to the store, can, can I get some ice cream? And uh, they ask you what flavor you want. And you're, you're like, I'd like chocolate. And they're like, okay, cool. But if you don't get chocolate, you're going to end up with dog poop flavored ice cream. And that's just like the worst. And there's so many opportunities to fix that. And that's where I'd be focused. That's where I'd be looking. Okay. So maybe not even anything in the for-profit business world at all. You're talking about like political reforms here. I think there's a lot of opportunity in for-profit, in civic tech, and I'd be interviewing a lot of the people who, you know, similar to our journey, I'd be interviewing a lot of the people who have dedicated their lives to public service and figure out like, why is everyone sitting in the room? They know the process is broken and they just don't feel for whatever reason they can fix it. And then I'd be using my entrepreneurial mindset to figure out like, cool, I'm going to go at this. Let's see, let, you know, what can I do to build small tests and figure out like, might this work? Might this not? And yeah. that's where I'd be looking. And that's what's the journey we did with climate. And I'd love to have more people focused on all the climate opportunities. But that one to me is one that, you know, one is what's the biggest impact we can make on climate voting and the U.S. national budget, the federal budget, the state's budgets. That is literally how we collectivize action. And we could make a huge impact there. That And we're seeing some baby steps, but we need so much more, so much faster. Nice. All right. That all sounds very cool and encouraging. And I hope that there are people who will take up your prescriptions here, Grant. So before I let you go, I do want to ask you one final question, which is that you dropped a couple of books that were useful for you earlier in the interview. You talked about the Wean Startup and you talked about Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. By the way, I love the line that he has in that book. I remember when I first read it, actually, I only read it once. So I remember the only, the first and only time that I read it, where he said that if you start your own company, you will sleep like a baby because you will wake up every two hours and cry and I thought that was such a, <laughs> yeah yeah that was a very I good about that one. yeah yeah it's really good so i too recommend a hard thing about hard things but is there anything else that's been useful for you in your journey now that you've had two startups that you've done you are raising tens of millions of dollars you're overseeing a team now of over 100 people is there anything that you recommend to others who want to try to emulate some of the success that you have had as an entrepreneur grant on the hard thing about hard things, the struggle, that's the, that, that poem or whatever you want to call it. That's one of the things that speaks to me the most. But after that, it's multipliers. I think a lot of the DNA of the founder that would go out and be like, you know what? Lots of people have tried, but for some reason I have the right stuff to be able to approach this problem. And my thinking is different and I've got all the grit. Then you have some initial success and then you've got people and oh my goodness, now I've got to manage people. What? Like, some of the same, some of those same advantages of having the courage to take on a big problem also turn into disadvantages in managing people. And I think multipliers for me was really helpful in speaking to how do how to multiply the effect of other people in the organization so that when you're in a meeting, you're actually amplifying. One example that stuck with me for a long time was just it was a simple example from parenting that was given, which was like, look when raising kids, you could be so much more successful and kids feel so much more empowered and happier is the thesis here. When you tell them, when you ask them a question, great, 
we're going to go. What do we do next? And when the kid can say, oh, we're going to go put on our coat and shoes and whatnot. Now, harder said than done. But that's different than, hey, small child, go put on your go put on your coat and shoes, which is more of a command form, etc. And that same example kind of brings up, and anyone listening to this can tell, I don't have kids. But that was an example that resonated with me as a now take out to the business environment. And you could basically see, oh, how do I ask people questions? How do I unlock information with more questions? And I found that book really powerful and compelling. That type of behavior, which is which is maybe antithetical to some of the stubbornness of, I'm going to take on this problem. You're still doing it because you're asking everybody what's been tried before. But then inside your own org, making sure that you continue to represent that same question-asking mindset and multiplying the talents and advantages of others. Okay, that's useful. We'll link as well to that in the show notes at businessforgoodpodcast.com. And Grant, I just want to say thanks. It was really great to get a chance to hang out with you in person. And I'm really happy to get a chance to hear and to have hear your story and have you tell it also for the show's listeners. So I hope that you reforest many millions of acres that have been burned and that we can uh, sequester a lot of carbon that you will be sucking from the air because of what you're doing and will give homes to a lot of wildlife as well. So I thank you for what you're doing and I will be rooting for your success as you continue to grow the company. Thank you for having me on and I hope it's helpful to others in their journeys, whatever they may be, and being able to do similarly make an impact, whether it be for climate or otherwise. So yeah, thank you for making, for amplifying my voice. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.